The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. So uh, today we're talking about conflict again. I know it's been a long journey so far, but with Having conversations with many of you, uh, it has been really powerful to, to me to hear how, how God has been challenging us and how we view uh, conflict. And so, um, as we continue on in this journey, I want to take a moment just to recap where we've come from, because I've been a pastor long enough to realize that we can all do with some good refreshers in our lives. And so, um, Dan, I've got a few slides up there. So here is a little bit of a, a um, table of contents for our sermon series together. And uh, one of the things that we started with was reminding ourselves how prevalent conflict is in our lives. It's everywhere, right? We can't avoid it. And yet, we are constantly reframing how we view conflict, not as something to be managed, not as something to be avoided, but as something to be transformed. Our goal in conflict is different than the goal of the world. Our goal is to, to see it transformed into uh, a way in which we follow Jesus. Through the midst of conflict, our goal is to follow Jesus, which looks like the North Star in this, um, in this slide, to love God and love each other. That is our goal. To love God, to love each other. And if we lean into conflict in this way, we will see increased fruit of the Spirit, decreased works of the flesh. And what that means is what we've been talking about by clothing ourselves in Christ, right? In the midst of conflict is the very place in which we live the fruit of the Spirit, that we, sh- that we show each other how we act in Christ, right? Conflict is the very place that we are called to practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of these things. That is the increased fruit of the Spirit. Then the decreased works of the flesh, right? The, the vices that Paul talks about in that passage in Colossians. Right? Where there is envy and malice and anger and hatred. That is the opposite of what we are, are going after here. And now the question then becomes, how, well, how, what does that look like practically? How do we, how do we walk through um, conflict actually? And this is where uh, we, we talked about going toward conflict with generosity. In the same way that God come, goes towards us. Right? To go Godward often. Meaning that everything, ev- everything that we do is, is, is being animated by our union with Christ, by being united with him, which means finding our identity in him. And, and all of this takes cultivation, right? This, this, um, this identity in Christ, uh, finding our, our security in him rather than in, in our uh, situations. This takes, this takes time in the word. This takes time reading the words of Scripture and reminding ourselves of Christ's love for us. And then today, we're moving on to getting curious. Listening with humility. Okay? Right now, our culture uh, is not 
growing closer but further apart. We are becoming more polarized than we have ever been before. I read an article this week that said four in ten Americans believe that polarization, I know this is Americans, but Canadians were probably in the same boat, four in ten see that polarization is the biggest problem facing their country. Polarization, being divided, moving further apart. Experts point to a very specific thing that we could do that we just don't have the capacity to do anymore, and that is to be curious about the positions of others. Curiosity. We have lost a sense of curiosity as a culture, as a nation, perhaps even as a world. Curiosity means listening to another person with the intent of learning from them. Going into a conversation expecting to grow, expecting to be changed in some way, shape, or form. When I was going through seminary, we did a lot of talk about how to receive criticism because it does sometimes come with a job. And, uh, and one of the things that one of my professors said to us is that you will never grow as a pastor in the way that you could unless you see that in every criticism there is a drop of truth. Even the most outlandish of criticisms have some truth to them. Can you have the humility to enter into that conversation expecting to grow? That's what curiosity means. And so we live in a culture that doesn't have the capacity to do that. Why is that? Well, right now in Canada, so two reasons for this. The first is right now in Canada, we live in a culture that's, that acts in, in a way that's very different than any other culture has acted before. We are told that if you want to be a good person, if you want to be your best self, if you want to thrive as a human being, then the way to do that is by looking inside yourself and living out what you see is your true, authentic reality. What does it mean to be the true Hayden? And to live that out regardless of what people say. I often use the, the Disney movie Frozen as a great analogy for this, and so I apologize if I've overused this, but this is Elsa's song. This is when she has that moment where she comes out and she says that there, she's, she's done with living the way that her parents tell her to live, and she is going to let it go. She even gets so explicit as to say, no right... No wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. It's the, the uh, modern um, manifesto, you could say, to live it out, to let it go. But the problem with that is that it, it kills any sort of curiosity. Curiosity is dangerous because what if you encounter somebody who is telling you that your authentic self is wrong? What do we do with that? For the modern person, curiosity is dangerous. But for the traditional person, curiosity is also dangerous. You know, there's other people who maybe aren't defined by what's inside them, but what's been told about them. An outside-in sort of identity. 
right, where we look to family or tradition outside of ourselves, the way things have done in the pa- been done in the past. But that also kills the opportunity for curiosity because anything that is new, anything that is different, anything that challenges the status quo is dangerous. Both of these positions, the modern person and the conservative person, are basing positions of curiosity off of fear and pride. Fear that says other people cannot be trusted. Other people's positions cannot be trusted. I can't open myself up because they're dangerous. They're they're too different than me. And pride that says I don't have to because I've got it figured out. They just have to wait and see. They'll just have to catch up with me. This is a big problem because, as I said before, without curiosity, we can't grow. We will never grow into our best self unless we have the capacity to be curious and to change. So there's only one way, I think, to get over the fear and the pride that plagues us to truly let ourselves open up to the positions of others, and that is to be transformed by the humility of Christ. In other words, our fear and pride has to be displaced in our lives by a trust relationship with Jesus, who is the only person who actually invites us into a relationship where we can grow that isn't dependent upon our performance. 100% by grace. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not about our moral performance. It's not about our put-togetherness. A trust relationship with Jesus where he meets us where we're at and promises that we will grow regardless of our performance. And so this is simple, but it isn't simplistic. And so what we'll do is we'll get into today three things that will help us become more curious in our lives. The first is seeing the commitments of a curious Christian. The second is seeing the activities, the actions, the practices of a curious Christian. And the third is seeing the Savior of a curious Christian. The commitments, the practices, and the Savior. Okay, so first let's look at the commitments. In verse 2, Paul says, then make my joy complete in being like-minded having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. How many people were a little bit confused at that? A little bit confusing. Does it seem like, how is this possible? How can we be of one mind? If we look back at the course of church history, we can see that if this is is what the church is called to do, we have done a very bad job at it. What is Paul saying here? Is he saying that we have to think exactly alike on every single aspect of doctrine and of lifestyle and of character? Paul clarifies this a little bit later on in verse 5 where he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. The word like-minded and mindset are very uh, are very similar in the original language. And so commentators often bring what's in verse 2 and verse 5 together to help clarify what Paul's talking about. Our like-mindedness is less of a commitment to thinking the same things 
thinking the same way, but actually being aimed in the same direction. Like-mindedness talks more about where we're headed as a community. As we've been saying on repeat throughout this series, right, the goal of conflict is not about winning or losing, right, not even about finding peace in the community. The goal of conflict is that it is the place that we aim ourselves at Christ, that we seek to follow him. One commentator I read this week says this about what Paul's saying. He says, Paul's imperative calls the community to the work of love. The work of the community is the love that Christ displayed by taking the very nature of a servant. Only a common commitment of love to of all to, to love as Christ loves will restore unity to the divided community. So what, what this is saying here is that the first commitment of a curious Christian is to Christ, to love the way that Christ has loved. The curious Christian is the one who sees, the, sees Christ as the person to aim ourselves at. So what it means to be like-minded with your brothers and sisters is to be chasing that goal. It's a baseline commitment that, that shocks us out of acting in, in ways of fear and pride. Because if we look at Jesus for a moment, during his life, he was never fearful of associating himself and listening intently to what others had to say. Jesus sought to understand people, even if he didn't agree with their position. We think about uh, Jesus talking with Nicodemus, right? He was, he was wide open to things like that. He was curious towards others, especially those who were marginalized, oppressed, moral outsiders. He would ask people who were sick and who were coming to him for healing, what do you want? And then listen intently to what they had to say. If we're to have the same love as Christ towards those in our community, at the very least, at the very least, it means mutual respect, attentiveness to the views of others. To do this, we may actually even have to shift the way that we see each other. John Calvin demonstrates how to do this when he uh, talks about how, why should we love our neighbors? Why, do, why is our neighbor worthy of our love? And he says this, he says, Remember not to consider man's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them. And so we can take this and apply it to our context here and say, even if you don't, even if you know heading into a conversation that this person thinks worlds apart from you, you have a duty, an obligation, because of the fact that they bear God's image, that you treat them with the same respect that you would treat Jesus. He goes on. The image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity, allures us to love and embrace them. Everyone is worthy of listening to. But more than just listening to, of respecting and loving and embracing because of the image of God in them. The first commitment of a curious Christian is to Christ. The second is to the church. 
So for Paul, the church offers the place where this type of curiosity and openness is possible. In verse 1, Paul says, If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete in being like-minded. Commentators all agree that Paul is using these phrases one after another as a way to build up and encourage this Philippian church. You, in other words, you could, you could replace this with saying, you are united in Christ. You are in his love. You share in his spirit. You are tender and compassionate. Now be like-minded. Even within the diversity of the church, Paul draws them in and builds them up, affirms what they're doing. The nature of the church should cause us to actually expect diversity, expect the need to be curious. I love how the uh, uh, Nashville pastor Scott Sauls puts it in his book, Befriend. He challenges us to see the church through the lens of the first disciples, and so we can play this through in our minds. Imagine this. Imagine being a part of the early church in this way. He writes, Peter, a loud and intense man, and John, a gentle and contemplative man, become as inseparable brothers through their shared union with Christ. Simon, an anti-government zealot, and Matthew, a government-employed tax collector, people who would outside of the community of Jesus, be trying to kill each other, are transformed from enemies to friends by that same union. Where we look at the church at its best, and we see it as a band of people who are very different, even enemies, even people who would be drawing their swords against each other that are brought together by their shared union with Christ. This is the power of the church. We should actually expect this. Bible scholar D.A. Carson adds to this conversation when he says, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural group, but because they've all been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. The more I read about the vision for the church in the scriptures, the more I'm saddened when people are, are too afraid or too proud to open themselves to what the church has to, to offer. This is a place where we can listen with genuine curiosity. This is a place where we can open ourselves up to hear from one another where we can experience the Holy Spirit that moves among us. This is a challenge to everyone, to those who feel like they're done with the church, to those who feel like they're ready to give up on it. This is the place for you. This is a band of natural enemies that have been brought together for no other reason than by our shared union with Christ. Stick with it. For those who feel like the church is changing too quickly, 
for those people who, who lament the fact that the church is, looks different than it did 50 years ago, we can expect to be pushed. It's happened throughout history, and it will continue to happen, and that does not mean that Jesus is not present with our community. The commitments of the curious Christian are to Christ, to love as he has loved us, and also to the church, like the band of natural enemies that have become friends. The second point is the actions of the curious Christian. Above the commitments, Paul gives us things that we ought to be doing. He says, uh, do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One of the most surprising things I think about this verse is, is who Paul's audience is. A little bit of contextual information about this letter. The, the Philippian church is actually Paul's best church. It's the one who's the most generous, the most hospitable, the most loving. And yet, he still includes this very pointed verse or few verses in here. Right? That he calls them and reminds them not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility. Right? I think this tells us that every one of us needs this as a constant reminder in our lives. The best of us can slowly slip into the place of power and ownership, right? Slowly, slowly, as time chips away at things, the church can stop being Christ's church and become more like my church. The church can stop being a place where the spirit moves and controls and can, starts being a place where I move and control. Some of us here have been a part of First Hamilton for a really long time. Since I've been a pastor here for the last four, four three, three and a half, four years, I've heard stories from people who've been baptized in this church 50 years ago, and it's, a, it's amazing to hear these stories. And it's incredible that, that people have grown up their entire lives in one community. These are stories that are so amazing, and it's such a gift. But it can also be dangerous. It can also be dangerous because slowly over time we can, we can slip into that place of ownership. We can look to exercise power and control because this is my church. Paul speaks against that here. Not being uh, filled with selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's sneaky. And it completely levels our ability to value other people to welcome other members of Christ's body as if they are the same as us. On the other hand, there are other people who come into this church maybe, um, maybe more recently, and they look around and they say, man, I can see the cobwebs. This place has got to change. I mean, it's so dated. Get with the times. Paul condemns this too. Like, he says, you know, do not be filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. He also preaches humility that values others 
above ourselves. The Greek word, when Paul says, look, look to the interests of others, this is a word that means pay careful attention to. And so what this means is that we have a duty, we have an obligation to our Christian brothers and sisters to look to their interests even above our very own. This means asking ourselves the question, what is best for so-and-so? What is best for so-and-so? Before we act, before we talk, before we judge. The actions of the curious Christian will challenge all of us not just to listen to each other, but to lay down our own agendas to seek the good of others. This posture moves us closer towards the love of Jesus. But how do we get the power to live like this? We have to see Jesus as the Savior of the curious Christian. We will only live like this when we see that, that this is the way that Jesus treats us. From the first pages of the Bible, we can see that we're bent towards ourselves, right? It's hardwired into us. We can't escape it. We're naturally proud. We're naturally selfish. We're naturally absorbed into our lives and our own ways. The Bible goes on to describe this way of living, not just as a problem, but as sin. It's what alienates us from a relationship with God himself. When we seek to live out our own lives above and beyond what, how God has called us to, we put up walls that alienate us from his love and his grace. But God doesn't leave us there. In the last verses of this passage, Paul tells us what Jesus did. He humbled himself and became like us in every way. What the Bible is saying is that Jesus became you. This is a powerful testimony of sacrificial love. But it's more powerful when we realize that God didn't have to. He had absolutely no obligation to enter into your life in any way. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity is important because it tells us that God is a community of love, a perfect community of love, existing in perfect joy and satisfaction in itself. Bible scholars often use this to describe the uh, doctrine of creation being that God didn't have to create us. It was an overflow of his love that he created the world. It wasn't because he needed our love. But we can continue playing this out to the cross. We say God continually does not have to enter into this world, and yet he does. Why is that? It's not because he has to. It's not because he needs our worship. It's not because he needs us. It's because he loves you. The Christian gospel tells us this, that God purely, exclusively came to earth out of love, humbled himself out of love, invites you into a relationship with him out of love. 
This is so encouraging to us. Because it means that it's not because we know the right things, believe the right things, act in the right ways, that we are significant to God. In fact, there's nothing that we can do that will change how much God loves us. It's purely by grace. We can rest. But this also challenges us. Because at the same time that we are deeply loved by God, we are also equally sinful and broken. As sinful and broken as our brothers and sisters. The gospel corrects our view of ourselves and of others. Because God doesn't love us for any specific good in us, how can we say that we are better or more worthy of his love than anyone else in the world? The gospel truly does rid ourselves of the fear and the pride that plagues us when we listen to other people. Because the gospel is that we are saved by grace, and for no other reason, it allows us to extend that same grace and love to others. We can listen with curiosity towards others, and actually see these conversations, because we're so messed up too, as a way to learn and grow. Let's pray. God, thank you for, for the cross. Thank you for Jesus who didn't leave us alone, but out of an overflow of love stepped into our lives, humbled himself, became like us in every way, and went to the cross, died for us that we may live. God, may this gospel change us and shock us out of our natural positions of fear and pride towards others. May we see Jesus as the one who helps us to really listen to each other, listen to learn, listen to grow. Help us to lean into the church in this way, that we can aim ourselves collectively, being like-minded, in aiming towards Christ. Give us your Holy Spirit, God, that leads us and guides us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.